Hi, everyone. Tom Rogers here, Director of Teachers Talk Radio. Thanks very much for tuning in and listening to this show. This show is sponsored and supported by Witherslack Group, Collins Big Cat, and by Renaissance. We can't be more excited to be sponsored by these fantastic companies. Please check them out on their websites, which are available through our website at ttradio.org. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, Professor Henry Roddy Roy Digger. <laughs> um, I'm aware that's what you like to be called, Roddy, is that right? Right. Uh, when I told uh, Professor Robert Bjork that you would be a guest, um, he's been a guest on my show. He said, mm -hmm. oh, Roddy will be great. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's good. I've actually interviewed quite a few people that have worked with you and spoke about you. Pooja Agarwal, Danlowski, mm -hmm. the name <laughs> So, well, I'll have a very brief introduction because uh, you, you're really well known, not only in your field, but with teachers and all the work that you've done with cognitive science. So correct me if I'm wrong or if I miss anything out, but you're a distinguished professor at Washington University in St. Louis. You've got your PhD from Yale University. Mm -hmm. You've written hundreds of articles and research papers. You've co-authored and contributed to over 10 books. And one that we're really going to focus on today is one of my favorite educational books. And that was one that you co-authored, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning. So is there anything I've missed out? Nope, that's all. You got it all right. <laughs> Well, for all my guests, I have a fun fact, and my fun fact about you uh, was after watching you on YouTube where you said about baseball metacognition. You wanted to be a professional baseballer, but then you realised you probably weren't good enough. <laughs> right. So then you've gone on to become a, a professor with psychology. Yes. And, and then, baseball. Yeah, and are you still doing that, right? Like, you're still doing the work with learning and memory is what you specialize mm -hmm. in? Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as I said, your book is brilliant. Um, it was published in 2014, but it's still incredibly popular. And um, one of the things I just wanted to ask you about, first of all, is something that I hear that I think is sometimes quite unfair when they say research about retrieval practice hasn't taken place 
that much in classrooms. And I think, well, actually, no, because Henry Roydigger, that was something that you wanted to do, wasn't it? Was, yes. on, um, was it Patrice Bain you worked with on a project about Patrice? Yes, Bruce Agarwal, Mark McDaniel, Kathleen McDermott, Patrice Bain, and other teachers at the school. Patrice was a teacher at Columbia Middle School who was instrumental in getting us into the school. It's very hard to do work in the classroom. Uh, you have to get permission of principal, superintendent, school board, all the parents, all the students. And so uh, the way it works in the United States is pretty tricky to get into the schools, but we did it. And a lot of other people have done it more recently at all levels. Uh, Jeff Klepicki has done it at elementary school level. Uh, other people, we did middle school and high school. Other people are doing college classes. So retrieval practice, uh, even medical school, retrieval practice seems to be quite successful uh, at all levels of education. Yeah, so is that what happened? The research that you were carrying out in schools were, were proven positive, like the research that you'd done in, in a laboratory setting? Yes, exactly. The, we first did a number of studies in the lab, and then we, uh, with simple materials like wordless and pictureless, and then we moved up to using prose materials that were more educationally relevant, and that worked too. So then we wrote grant proposals uh, to give us funds to take it into the classroom, and um, it was an awful lot of work to do it in the classroom. Uh, we had really good research assistants to be in the classrooms every day with the kids and to the teacher would leave and the uh, uh, student would have them re practice retrieval on some facts and just read other facts and then we'd test them weeks and months later and the ones that they practice retrieval on they remembered better than the facts they just reread and rereading is normally what students say they do when they study so retrieval practice seems to confer a much greater benefit than just rereading in the in a school setting. Yeah, well, then you went on to inspire Patrice and Pooja wrote a book and yes. written books about retrieval practice. Yeah. So obviously, since you first published it, it it's, it's come a long way, but it's still important to spread the word. I think there's still that misconception there about learning. Would you agree? Yeah, well, most of us think of learning as, um, you know, I remember hearing all kinds of metaphors like uh, furnishing your storehouse of knowledge, getting information into your brain. And the other, that, that's true, you really need to do that. But the other important thing is using the information, uh, retrieving it, getting out and using it and applying it. So that's where retrieval practice is good. And that's built into certain kinds of subjects like math. You're always given problem sets in math, but in something like history or social studies, it's much more rare to be asked to use the information to on tests or to write essays about it or what have you. And so it really helps in subjects that where practicing is not as customary in the classroom. Yeah, and the students in, in the schools that you worked with, um, because it's not it's not just university age students. It was younger, right. wasn't it, as well? Yeah, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders in the U.S. Uh, so yeah. uh, and high school too. Yeah, and this echoes what 
lots of other researchers been saying that it's a strategy to use yes. with, with students of all ages. Yep. Um, and then wouldn't it be great if by the time students get to you in university that they're already familiar with this, right. been a habit, a routine? Yes, but it doesn't seem to have done that yet. I have, I teach a first year class at Washington University and some students come in and one had actually read the book, um, but most of them never heard of it. <laughs> so yeah. it hasn't really spread widely yet, I think. Yes, so it's it's spread wider than <laughs> before yeah. you, your book, but still a long way to go. Still when, a long way to go, yes, absolutely. Uh, so when you wrote um, your book with Peter Brown, Mark McDaniel, was it, because I know lots of other people have read it who aren't teachers, was your audience teachers or was it anyone who wants to learn about learning? It, it was anyone who wants to learn about learning. I mean, we did have education focus in mind because that's the realm we've been working in. But we tried to use examples from you know, neurosurgeons of all kinds of people and all kinds of walks of life to broaden it. And that seems to have worked. Uh, we have people who are coaches of sports who read the book and contacted us. We've had uh, actually professional sports teams who've asked us. The Navy SEALs asked Mark and me to come out and talk. Uh, so uh, they, I got an email one day from uh, the head trainer of the Navy SEALs at that time, uh, Carl Check, and he said, we read your book. We think maybe we're training the Navy SEALs wrong. We'd like to, to come out and visit with you, with us if you would. And so we did that. Uh, and it was interesting, we spent two days there and talked to all the trainers of the Navy SEALs. Some of them flew out from Virginia too, where they have another Navy SEAL base. So it was really interesting to hear about their training and to uh, see what we could suggest that would be different. Yeah, because your book has examples of a pilot, of a surgeon, like yeah. you said. And, um, I was speaking to a, a head teacher, a principal recently, who'd been trying to promote retrieval practice. And a teacher had said, well, that's just common sense. And he said, it might be common sense, but it's not common practice. And yeah. I think that's that's quite a fair description, isn't it, really, of what's yeah. happening in classrooms? Yeah. I'm not even sure it's common sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, like, because <laughs> you, you've written about what students prefer, isn't it? And yeah. the, the natural instinct is the reason. I remember one time, very early on, when I was doing this, a reporter interviewed me, and uh, I was talking about, I said, how do you study for tests? How did you study for tests? Oh, I reread. And I said, well, you know, let me tell you about our work and uh, show them graphs how retrieval practice is better than rereading. And at the end of the conversation, he said, I find what you just told me deeply counterintuitive. So uh, it wasn't common sense to him because people are so used to thinking the way you get information into your memory is to read about it. And that's true. I mean, it does get it in. But to make it sick, as the saying goes, you need your practice retrieval. Yeah, and I think that's why some teachers might think it's common sense because we quiz. But it's that idea of um, I used to do things about I might ask a quick question about last lesson and then move on and not do this regular space retrieval practice. Yeah. And what I loved about your book, make, um, about making it stick, was about you also wrote about the strategies that aren't effective. Uh, you wrote about what, you know, what, what helps 
students learn and actually the things that don't like the learning styles and the mm -hmm. cramming and things like that but um i interviewed daniel willingham and uh, these things are still around aren't they the learning styles and sure yeah yeah that comes back to what we're saying about there's still still a long way to go um, right. but that was in 2014 and i know you've carried on doing research into retrieval practice since then yes um, there's quite a few things that I've been reading that um, I thought was really interesting. Um, there was one, um, 2018, with your colleagues, the testing effect in a social setting, does retrieval practice benefit a listener? So mm -hmm. that was really interesting. So just for our listeners, can you tell us what, <clears throat> what you were hoping to find out or what you did yeah. find out from that? Yeah, well, the inspiration for the study is a lot of teachers will uh, fill out a question in class and maybe one person raises her hand to answer the question and answers it correctly, let's say. And then the question is, what did the other people gain from that? Were they trying to answer the question themselves, in which case it might really help them? Or were they just sitting there hoping somebody else would answer it? And so what we found is that you can get other people uh, to show benefits of throwing out a question, but you have to make sure they try to answer it. So, um, and they don't naturally do that. Most people are seemingly, even when there's only two people, are sitting back just waiting for the answer. And so uh, one thing you can do in class um, is uh, put people, one strategy is called on the hook. You uh, <clears throat> give people, say, numbers in the class. Everybody has a number. Uh, and you throw out a question, and then you pull a number out of a jar, and you say, OK, number 23, answer the question. Uh, and so everybody is on the hook. Everybody's sitting there thinking, oh my god, uh, she might call on me. Uh, and then everybody's trying to retrieve. And even if they don't get it, one finding in the literature, if you try hard to retrieve and then somebody else or you get the answer with feedback, it still works. It still uh, shows a benefit. So, you, But you have to make that effort. And so um, that's one good way to do it in the classroom, uh, have people be called on randomly, essentially. Oh yeah, well that's 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 brilliant. That links in. Doug Lamarv is an author in America, and he's written about cold calling and yeah. keeping everyone engaged. But then obviously that links yeah. in with what you're saying as well. Yeah. Um, and does that link in with your research then about covert and overt retrieval? Right. Yeah, you've got. So the question is, if you're sitting in the library and you want to practice retrieval, but you don't want to bother all the people around you. Can you look at a question, answer it in your mind, um, not say anything out loud or write anything down, uh, and then go on to the next item? And we found that uh, this covert retrieval works, but again, only you kind of have to beat people over the head to get it. You've really got to make sure they try to retrieve. And it doesn't come naturally. We had to work at it to get that effect. Uh, and so it really will work, but only if you're really honest with yourself and really try hard to be free. 
And again, if you try hard to retrieve and you're given the answer, you can't come up with it, but you say it's a flashcard, you turn the card over and you get the answer. Well, that helps a lot too. Just the effort after retrieval uh, seems to really help. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Because, yeah, I suppose in class, we, when we're actually, so when we're getting students to physically write it or say it, that's mm -hmm. the overt retrieval then, isn't it? Right. So, but then that also provides extra information for the teacher. So I yeah. suppose the downfall with the covert retrieval is that the teacher doesn't know. Is that right? right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, you can get people, there are also clicker systems that are used in the US, you know, where you throw that question, say you put a question up on the board, this is actually what we did in the middle school because they had the clicker system and say it's multiple choice. You put up a question and there are four answers and you ask the students to click in. So they have to think about the question and then they look at A, B, C, D and they click in A, B, C or D. And then uh, after everybody clicks in, the teacher throws it up on the screen and shows how many students answer each thing. The students are identified, but then the teacher can tell them the correct answer, and then everybody benefits. Everybody tried. You, the teacher gets to know how many people didn't know the answer because uh, she sees the results as does the whole class. So that's another good way of having uh, questions in the class where the teacher gets to know the answer and the students get immediate feedback to correct anything they got wrong. Well, actually, something else that I learned from you. So a while ago, I sent you an email this is quite a while back about retrieval practice. And you mentioned about feedback. And that was something that I either sort of rushed or skipped through or just said, look at your scores, let's move on. And then when you said actually about the importance of feedback with retrieval mm -hmm. practice, I thought, oh, yeah, what I was doing wasn't enough. So perhaps for other teachers who may be just doing a quiz and saying, right, look at your score. But the problem, obviously, we're looking at a score is they may have got 12 out of 15, don't know which three were incorrect. So mm -hmm. so why was the, the, the feedback with retrieval so important? Well, uh, so we've done some studies showing. So, so imagine I ask you what's the capital of Canada? You ask your students, what's the capital of Canada? And they say Toronto. And you um, don't give them feedback. Um, and then they retrieve a practice and have wired in the wrong thing. The capital of Canada is Ottawa, uh, which even American students don't know, uh, by and large. Uh, so um, if you don't get feedback, they've learned the wrong thing. You've, you've created a false knowledge situation. So you have to get feedback or else they will show retrieval practice for misinformation, for the wrong information. Yeah, and I, I know that sounds very obvious, but it, I was just thinking about the benefits of retrieval practice, or I just was just, as I said, rushing feedback, not doing it thoroughly and properly and clearly, like mm -hmm. you said. Um, and you just mentioned misinformation. So in the 90s, that's, you did a lot of work on false memories, mm -hmm. and, um, memory illusions. And um, so just for our listeners, what, what type of things 
what when you we refer to false memories what's that sure uh false memories are remembering things either differently from the way they happen or in the most dramatic case you remember things that didn't happen at all um and there are various techniques i've studied four or five different ways of doing this one way is called imagination inflation um, if you imagine something over and over um, you might have had the experience of uh, say you have to take antibiotics for a week and you've got them in a bottle and you get the bottle out and you look then you get distracted for a moment and then you look back and say did i take it or did i only think about taking it that's happened to me a lot and so you kind of imagined you were going to take it because you took the bottle out but then i've often had to count out the pills and say am i got the right number uh, and so if you imagine doing something especially the paradigm we use was just having students sit at a desk and we gave them little objects like uh, a pen um, and say some people were told uh, pick up the pen or sometimes they were told pick up the pen they actually did it other times they just heard the command pick up the pen but they didn't do anything and in the other case they imagined picking up the pen but they didn't actually do it they just said you know we just told them imagine you're picking up the pen and we had did this over and over with lots and lots of things and then we tested people two weeks later and what we found was the more times they imagined picking up the pen the more likely they would think they actually did it two weeks later we asked them uh, two weeks later did you actually do this and we gave them all these commands and if they just read it they didn't think that very much if they actually did it they remembered it pretty well but if they imagined it repeatedly they um, tended to believe they really did it they, re they remembered picking up the pen but in fact they just thought about picking up the pen or imagined picking up the pen and so that's one way to create false memories but there's lots of others uh too one way uh, another way just quickly is imagine you're um viewing pictures or viewing a scene with another person and unbeknownst to you the other person is working with the experimenter and then it comes time to recall and you're asked to take turns recalling objects from the scene and the other person the the experimenter's confederate mentioned some objects that weren't actually there will you pick those up will you put those in your memory oh, wow. because the other person suggested it and the answer is yes you pick them up the more congruent they are with the scene so if you're looking at a kitchen and there's no toaster and the other person suggests a toaster well yeah you're going to pick that up and put it in the scene quite readily if you say something like oven mitts which could be there they're much more rare you're much less likely to pick those up so um that's another we call that the social contagion of memory how one person's wrong answers will infect another person's memory but of course if the other person says correct stuff that boosts your memory but you're we're social beings so our memories we think of our memories as being our own but they're actually part of the world around us too because we're always getting information from the world even after the fact so um that's one way another way misinformation can arise so if a student um if two students were quizzing in class and a student one student got the incorrect answer 
that is that so important why we do give the feedback right exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah because if you don't correct misinformation immediately it can sick you're making it sick by retrieving it so you have to have the correct answer feedback yeah well that's interesting well something um that links to this is something that i find problematic on a multiple choice quiz where it says select two options uh, what i have noticed if if that happens and a student is has one correct option and one incorrect option that they've sometimes forgot which one is which yeah, yeah. um evidence shows those those kinds of tests aren't as good as single answer tests yeah um, the, the people from the educational testing service have done a lot of research on this in the u.s and um and those complicated multiple choice items like you know a and b but not c and that kind of thing those uh they're almost iq tests they're tests of reasoning not not of what you know so much yeah that's really interesting and the same when um on a multiple choice quiz if you have the option um this was uh, i think andrew butler wrote about this and mm -hmm. um and he about avoid all of the above because yeah. um it's a similar type of thing like if a student selected a different option to all of the above and it came up as incorrect well it isn't is it it's just the answer that they were looking for was all of the above right and then they may think that the other two options were they incorrect and yeah. and this links in with everything that, that you've written about and that you're saying right now and about that importance of crystal clear feedback isn't it yeah no, Andrew. Uh, yeah, no, I know the paper you're, you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just brilliant, actually, because I started teaching in 2010, but cognitive psychology wasn't mentioned and memory, um, which and, and now it is in the UK. There's been this like what Daniel Willingham calls the cognitive science and psychology revolution in education. And and that's large, you know, thanks to your book and the work of your colleagues. And that, but that's quite surprising, really, isn't it? And that's that teachers don't have this. What what you're teaching your students about memory? No, they, mostly they don't. I mean, in our education schools, they sometimes take an educational psychology course. Um, Andrew Butler is now chair of the education department here at Washington University. He was a student of mine here. Um, and but most so they'll get it in our education department but most don't as far as i can tell yeah well um i believe you work with megan sumaraki as well who um yeah. has gone on to do the learning scientists and yeah. and that's yeah yeah pujagwellretrievalpractice.org because now i've learned a lot about retrieval practice i'm really trying to share that with students and with parents and like you said with your book everyone should know about this shouldn't they yeah no i think it'd be good to be taught in fourth or fifth grade or something like that here's the way you learn because at least in the u.s uh, it's rare for students to be taught how to study and if they are taught it's mostly rereading and um some schools do have and um my own children had a really good teacher who they came home well one of my my daughter came home one day and said oh 
I was asking her, what was class about today? And what did you learn? She said, oh, we learned how to study. I said, oh, really? And I said, what did she tell you? And the teacher got it mostly all right. I mean, she was really gave good advice. So I think it really helped. But a teacher early on can make a huge difference by teaching students how to study. And why it's not done in elementary school, I don't know. I mean, it's not here. Um, and probably not in the UK either. Yeah, we're not at that point. Although I notice, you know, we're moving in that direction, but it tends to be with older students. Was yeah. it'd be better younger, wouldn't it? Like, yeah, sure would. Uh, they just just got used to doing it. Yeah, a lot of us discovered. A lot of students. I discovered testing myself on my own when I was in school, um, but it was only after I wasn't getting very good grades and figured, oh, I need to get serious about this in a particular subject. Uh, we had a quiz every Friday and the first couple, I didn't do that well. And I thought, okay, we gotta fix this. And so I started testing myself, reading the book and making up questions and then testing myself and then that turned things around. So I think uh, I think a lot of people discover it on their own, and, but an awful lot don't. <laughs> yeah, not, that is a shame. Um, there's some questions that I get asked by teachers mm -hmm. that I almost think that research, it, it might be too difficult to answer because of variables, such as how often you see your students, complexity of the topic, because the a question I'm always asked really is how long should a teacher wait between teaching brand new content and information and then doing a retrieval quiz, because obviously you've written a lot about forgetting and the mm -hmm. importance of forgetting. Um, yeah. But there's no, well, there's no definitive black and white answer, no, is there? No, there isn't, because you're right, there's just so many variables that, that there's really simple materials. It might be different from really complex materials. Uh, um, teachers in the US, the ones who are starting to do this, some people, give a quiz at the end of every class. And so um, uh, one of my colleagues here at the university, um, she assigns readings, then she teaches her class. And at the end of the class, uh, students are given just a 10 minute quiz on uh, the some questions from the reading, some from the lecture. And um, that works really well for her. Because uh, then they have to, for one thing, I mean, teaching, uh, testing, retrieval practice has all these indirects of benefits. You have to do the reading. You have to come to class uh, in college. That's not a given. And you uh, then pay really careful attention during the lecture and, and students ask more questions because they really want to understand it in case they're asked a question about it. So it has these indirect benefits besides direct benefits of retrieval practice. That's one way to do it. The way I teach a seminar course uh, to first year students. And what I do is assign uh, the readings and then I give them a question. They have to, an essay question. They have to write for every class about a 500 word essay. And it's due at eight in the morning, the day of the class, class meets two days a week. And they, um, I read all the essays before class and then I work the essays into the class. I say, oh, you know, uh, John said so and so. What 
um, do you, then calling somebody else say, do you agree with John? Because I'll pick somebody who wrote something different. So um, that way they have to synthesize it ahead of time, read carefully for me, and then write a brief, you know, 500 word or so, two page essay. Um, and that's worked well for me. Uh, the students seem to learn a lot that way. And they don't like it at first, but by the end of the class, for one thing, their writing has improved. I give them a little feedback on writing, but just doing it over and over helps them a lot. Um, so uh, it's a small class or else I couldn't do it. It's limited to 20 people. And I have a teaching assistant who reads half of them and I read half. And sometimes I team teach it with a friend in anthropology. So that's one strategy I've used, but you know, you, it takes a lot of work. You know, people ask me, well, isn't that a lot of work for you? I say, yep, it is. But you know, if you're doing it right, that's the way you do it. Yeah, I mean, that um, the, the question about how long to wait, I feel that teachers sort of find their groove with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, a lot of, some teachers will, um, at, the, at the beginning of the following class, they'll ask questions about the previous class and the readings for this class. So that's another way to do it. And that way you you have some forgetting from the previous lecture and the previous readings, and you can ask some questions about that. And it helps you bring the information back. Uh, and then if it's something really, really important, something you just have to know, repeat retrieval at space intervals is the way to do it, as you said at the outset. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? Repeated, because if you ask something that hasn't been revisited or quizzed in such a long time yeah. then, then it will be really difficult and slow won't it to mm -hmm. to retrieve so it, i suppose it is like finding those sweet spots of not yeah. too far not too recent because then it's i suppose daniel willingham says rattling around in working memory <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? no, want to be out of working memory that's for sure yeah, yeah. you don't want immediate Immediate testing, um, Jeff Kopicki and I and others have shown just doesn't do anything. If you've just heard something and it's sitting there in working memory, asking you to retrieve it doesn't do a thing. Right. So that's that that key, isn't it? The key yeah. element of the um, um and you mentioned that, yeah, Jeffrey Kapicki, he's done loads with retrieval practice, hasn't he? It's yeah. absolutely fantastic. Um, some of the things that you and him have written about, well, is about how some students have preferred the rereading and the highlighting so that's another challenge we have <laughs> and like it feels counterintuitive and students would rather highlight so so that's a barrier for us um and then also you just mentioned there about there's direct benefits isn't there and then mm -hmm. indirect benefits mm -hmm. so what do you think are the the, the main benefits of retrieval practice for anyone listening who's not quite sold on it yet well, the direct benefit is very clear. If you retrieve something, you remember it much better than if you reread it or if you're not exposed to it at all. Um, the indirect benefits, as I mentioned, are people tend to study more at the university. They tend to show up to class more if they're going to be quizzed in class. They, um, uh, there's some other more obscure ones that aren't too educationally relevant, but are interesting. Um, but the main ones are uh, paying more attention, uh, reading more deeply, and showing up and taking, staying on top of the course all the way through it. 
because a lot of time at university level, you often, at least in the US, you'll have like a midterm exam and a final exam where you study right before the midterm, you study right before the final, but you don't really keep up during the semester. And so daily quizzing or even weekly quizzing makes you keep up with the class. And so a lot of students say on our, when we give course evaluations and they have a free response, this is the first class I ever really kept up with since I've been in university. Well, that's great for their confidence, morale, motivation. Yeah. So those are all those extra bonus indirect benefits that you mentioned, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. In terms of um, the research with retrieval practice, I know you said that there was lots of challenges in a school, but obviously you felt it was really important to do it in a school environment. Um, what do you think, like, moving forwards with retrieval practice, do you think research should be looking at next with it? Because it seems it's overwhelmingly positive that it's a great strategy. So what, what more have we got to learn about it, do you think? Well, I think you mentioned one thing. When are the best intervals for repeated retrieval if you really want to know something for the long term? We don't know that yet. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be very complicated to answer that question. but. It really is a critically important one because teachers ask that to me too. And what I say is, look, you need your space retrieval. I can't tell you exactly how space it should be. I'm sorry. Uh, once a week, once every two weeks. I mean, you can measure how fast forgetting is. What you'd like to do is hit it when forgetting starts being rapid. Uh, hit it again if it's something you absolutely need to know. And so, but I, you can't say without a lot of research when that will be. And now the retrieval practice is being used in huge corporations. I'm hoping they will do experiments uh, like for training. If you're, uh, uh, I advise several companies that, that uh, I'm on the scientific advisory board uh, for companies where they use retrieval practice for training employees. Well, let's say uh, you're working in a shoe store. A shoe store is where you have heavy turnover of employees. They don't stay for long. But every new employee, you have to bring them up to speed with where are all the types of shoes and what do I recommend to this customer? Suppose it's an older person. Suppose it's a jogger. You know, suppose it's a basketball player. Uh, what do I recommend? And so they use retrieval practice to bring people up to speed. Uh, and so they, they've got uh, hundreds of uh, employees that they're always, even thousands of employees. One of the companies I uh, advise uh, has a contract with McDonald's in the UK, or in England, I'm not sure which, um, on training McDonald's employees as they come into the system, because that's another place where employee turnover is really large. And so to learn all the different products and what to say, they use retrieval practice. Um, so they've got a contract with McDonald's. And so they could do experiments where they really find out a whole lot of information about what the best spacing of retrieval is. And I suspect the companies are doing that. And I hope they'll publish the results because it would be useful for everyone. But a lot of companies that do research, they want to keep the research private to help themselves and not put it out in the community. So it's not like academics doing research where it's our job to get it out there. But companies often have, uh, you know, uh, 
possession of the research and they don't particularly want to share it. They have no incentive to share it. Yeah. Whereas for academics, that's how life is doing the research and then sharing it with the scientific community and with the public if it's publicly relevant. So let's see. What else did you, you just ask something that I got off on a tangent? Uh, no, no, that is absolutely fascinating. And I was just thinking about how I use retrieval practice as an adult, as a teacher. If I'm mm -hmm. teaching history and it's a period or a you know a topic I haven't taught in a long time, I used yeah. to really read, you know, and highlight like <laughs> and now I I quiz myself on it or I'll read it first and then wait and quiz myself. Um so yeah, but my, my question was about like what's next with retrieval practice. Oh what's next? Um well answering these difficult questions, I think. I can there's so much research on retrieval practice, people taking it into chemistry education, biology education, medical education, legal education in the US. I can not keep up with the whole research base. Luckily, there are review articles out there uh, that I can keep up with because I do research in several different areas. So um, uh, I think people will be looking more. Let me tell you about one study that's in press that I did with two of my students, Oiku Uner and Il Tekken. Um, they were interested in the question that nobody's asked yet. Do true-false tests create a retrieval practice benefit? And if you think about it, reading a true statement, oh, and the control condition is rereading. So if you're rereading a question and saying it's true or false, uh, does that help you more than just rereading the question? Is there any benefit? And I was kind of skeptical that we'd find these things. Uh, they're both from Turkey, and true-false tests are used a lot in Turkey, apparently. And so we did the study. We compared true-false testing and mobile-choice testing, because we know mobile-choice testing produces a benefit. So we compared the two with a reading control condition. And sure enough, true-false testing also produced a retrieval practice benefit of about the same size as mobile-choice testing. Um, and one of the things that I mentioned to uh, to listeners is that the type of test does seem to matter. The retrieval practice benefit, uh, the, the evidence is not totally consistent on this, but one idea is retrieval practice benefit is greater the more effort you put into the test. So if I give you a free response question, uh, if I say uh, in psychology, Define operant conditioning and give an example of it. Well, you have to then generate all this knowledge from memory and provide an example from that you make up or that you've read about somewhere. Um, and that's a lot better than giving a multiple choice question about operant conditioning, because you have to put a lot of effort in. You have to kind of um, also think about the whole package. What is operant conditioning? What is it for? How do I define it? How do I apply it? Whereas in a multiple choice question or a true false question, you're just answering basically about a fact. So if you do something like I prefer, I, I try, unless the class is big, I try to only give essay tests because I think those make you integrate information in a way that multiple choice and true false don't necessarily do. Uh, those help you learn the basic information, but they don't help you put it together. Whereas essay tests or even short answer tests help you to construct a model of the answer and put several facts together. 
Yeah, well, um, you wrote and make it say about embrace the difficulty, isn't it? Right. And and that and the Bjorks, the desirable difficulties. Right. Um, so yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um, Megan, um, uh, I'm assuming Mark, I think it was, um, wrote about the younger students can struggle, can't they, with that lack of, if you say right, right, you know, free recall. And yeah. they need a little bit more guidance. So I found mm -hmm. with the younger, yeah, to do the multiple choice. And then when you maybe towards the end of a topic, when they've got more confidence, more knowledge, then do that really effortful, challenging uh, type of retrieval. Because you can still do it with younger right. students, but it it's sort of a teacher knows when, isn't it? You know, you'll know. Yeah. How, how much your students will be able to recall, how much support they need. Right. Right. There's, there's a lot of research on multiple choice questions out there. I'm a retrieval practice. <laughs> That's a, I think the favorite test for researchers to use. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. Do you plan on, on conducting, I know you're obviously teaching and doing lectures, but do you plan on conducting more research then yourself in retrieval practice? Yeah, I'll, I'll be doing some more. I'm heading towards the end of my career. I don't have, uh, I've stopped taking graduate students now. Right. So um, I'll be doing it, but uh, all my students are um, busy doing great work, uh, Jeff. Perfectly, Andrew Butler, Pooja Agarwal, yeah. and a number of others uh, are uh, at it. So I feel like they'll continue the tradition, even if I don't. Oh. I'll probably do a few more studies before I retire. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I hope you do because this, um, and, and the thing, the great thing about your book, um, and I'll, I'll share links about it, was just how easy and accessible it was. For, for me and other teachers to understand, because obviously sometimes the research papers are very yeah. academic and rigorous. Yeah. So that's what I would recommend is, is your book or Pooja's website, which is very mm -hmm. teacher student friendly, yeah. um, but breaking down yeah. essentially everything that you've done from your research, isn't it? And Pooja's book is like that too, it's very accessible. Yes, it is. And they write about you going in there mm -hmm. and, yeah, and Patrice as well. And that's it. The fact that you worked with Patrice, we're having this conversation. Um, I'm, I'm huge fans of Elizabeth and Robert Bjork. And I just think this is wonderful that that gap is closed between the academic and the teaching community. Yep. We're trying to close it. Yeah, yeah. And that's you've played a huge role in that by saying, well, actually, we're learning about memory and learning. Why, why aren't the teachers aware of this? No. <laughs> Which yeah. makes absolute sense, doesn't it? But, oh, yeah, I could talk to you all day about memory and, and learning and um, even, you know, the, the research from, from years ago, which is actually really quite interesting. Um, teachers sometimes see the dates on this research and well, Ebbinghaus forgetting curve, <laughs> 1885, but actually right. it's been replicated many, many times. So I think with cognitive psychology and science that um, it's not something necessarily, I know research has moved on, but mm -hmm. I feel like the teaching profession, we're a bit behind, we're catching up now, you know, and even teachers who read, who are new to the profession, read your book published mm -hmm. in 2014, 
but still very relevant, very helpful. Yeah, I don't think you found anything since publication that would ch that's challenged anything in your book, is there? No, no, nothing over challenge. Yeah. No, uh, I mean, there'd be refinements and there would be, we were thinking about writing a new book about all the people who applied retrieval practice and other techniques mentioned in the book in their classrooms and in their lives. And um, we've got a number of examples where people collect data before and after data. Um, yeah. How many people pass a certain test, then they introduce matrix six principles, then many more people pass the test later. So that kind of thing. Yeah, because um watch the new book at some point. Oh, I'd love that. Absolutely. Because well, Daniel Willingham published a second edition. Yes. There were some things he just wanted to add that had, and that's what happens, isn't it, with a book like that, that you publish it and then research is moving it <laughs> fast. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, will all will it be make it made make it stick to, or will it be <laughs> we haven't decided we don't have a title yet. Uh, make, oh. it yeah. <laughs> make it stickier yeah i love that no, that, won't, that won't be the title <laughs> well, there was actually another book um by the heath heath brothers yeah. made to stick which yeah. i also love as well and i think it's a good book yeah oh it's so good and i contacted them about um about they write about the powers of storytelling and yeah. and I contacted them and they used my example from a classroom so it's oh. all yeah it's all very connected yeah. isn't it yeah yeah oh well thank you so much um for oh, your time for having me yeah, yeah. You're so nice to meet you yeah great to to meet you you're so knowledgeable you publish so much and you really really helped i mean i was teaching in abu dhabi for five years reading your work your work is just all around the world so a very big thank you okay thank you nice to see you this episode of teachers talk radio has been made possible with support from witherslack group the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Upland. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC Schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot U-K. Whatever learning looks like this year, bring lessons to life with Nearpod. An exciting new addition to the Renaissance family, Nearpod offers real-time insights into student understanding through interactive lessons and videos, gamification and activities, all in a single, easy-to-use platform. To help kickstart the new year, we're offering all primary and secondary schools in the UK and Ireland 
full, free access to Nearpod for the whole spring term. So, no matter what 2022 brings, Nearpod makes switching between in-class and remote teaching simple. Visit www.renlearn.co.uk forward slash Nearpod and sign up for your free trial today. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common, a passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. In England, the Education Secretary, Nadim Sahawi, is to introduce new guidance for teachers to ensure a balanced discussion of politics in lessons. Mr Sahawi stated in The Sun on Sunday that teachers must handle political discussions in the classroom sensitively. He said, While there is a clear need for schools to address political issues in the classroom from time to time, this must not be done in a partisan way. No school should be encouraging young people to pin their colours to a particular political mast. As the Secretary of State for Education, I want to make sure that each and every child is given the opportunity to come to their own opinions without being swayed by what others think. Mr Sahawi said schools must assess all materials relating to political issues to ensure they are appropriate and will be provided with a framework for discussion and de-escalation in cases of disputes. The guidance is to be published next week. Redbridge Council's Schools Tree Planting Initiative has involved school children across Redbridge in the planting of more than 80 new trees in the borough. The council initiative is part of efforts to increase tree coverage in the borough and give children hands-on experience in planting and caring for trees, while learning about the importance of trees and greenery in helping to tackle climate change. Head of Coppice Primary School, Michael Fernandez, said, It has been an amazing experience for our entire school as children from nursery all the way through to year six have had the chance to be part of planting our new orchard. We feel very fortunate that our existing nature garden has now been expanded to include apple, pear and plum trees. During the planting sessions, pupils learnt about the important environmental and health benefits trees bring, including helping clean up the air we breathe, provide shade and create natural habitats for wildlife. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. 
This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, for some it's half term, for others there's another week to wait. Today I'm going to talk about a YouTube hack. We all know there are some great explanation videos out there, but sometimes we just want to use a short clip, not the whole thing. Did you know you can save a link to start at a time that you specify? If you didn't, here's the simplest way to do it. Go to the YouTube video you want and pause where you want to start. Hover the pointer over the red line that shows where you're up to in the video and a red circle will appear. Right click on the red circle and a menu pops up. On the menu, select copy video URL at current time. Now you have a link that will take you to that time in the video. Okay, now we can start a video at any time we want. There is a way to use this to our advantage. I don't know about you, but the ads at the start of some clips can be rather annoying. If you start your video one second in, using the method just described, more often than not, you'll avoid having to sit through the adverts. Please remember to keep yourself safe. Anyone can upload anything to sites like YouTube. Please make sure you have watched the whole clip yourself before playing it in the classroom. For a visual version of this episode, check out the TT Radio 2022 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.